0: Folks, there are few things more humbling in life than trying to help a kid with their math homework. (laughs) It's sort of an exaggeration, but it's pretty amazing how often my oldest kid asks me for help with his homework, only to watch his dad painfully scratch his head and fumble with obvious uncertainty. He's only in third grade. (laughs) So it's not like... It's not like I couldn't give him the answer, although I confess I'm a bit out of practice with multiplication tables. The real issue is that he's supposed to show his work. The teacher wants to know how he came up with the answer. And also, I think the rules have changed (laughs) since I was in school, or I've completely lost it. I don't remember ever having to do some of these strange mathematical gymnastics to multiply or divide numbers. At this stage, I don't even know if I would be able to show my work if I had to prove that 12 times 6 is 72. It's 72, right? (laughs) Yeah? Okay. Of course it is 72. And you didn't need to draw shapes or clusters or factors to find the answer. But here's the thing. I do understand why the teachers are asking them to show their work and also I understand why the methods for finding the right answer involve now so many optional routes. Because teaching kids ought to be less about memorizing and reciting the answers to simple math equations and it should be more about giving them the tools to solve problems. And if they find in the end that they came up with the wrong answer, they now know how to retrace their steps and and maybe even try a different method for correcting their error. Problem solving skills are important, not just for math, but also and especially for problems that are more complex, sometimes without a single right answer. Because in those cases, problem solving skills are even more important because they're way more about how we think and how we engage tough situations. And they're less about offering a quick solution. Another way to put this is that the process of problem solving is often more important than a specific outcome. The situation for the early church in first century Corinth was not a simple math equation. But there were certainly problems within the community. We can tell from the letter that we now call 1 Corinthians that, A, it was almost certainly not the first letter to or from the Corinthians and Paul, and B, it was almost certainly not written with the intention of becoming an authoritative book in our Bible. There's a lot of shorthand references to things that we don't understand, specific things about the community in Corinth. Paul seems to be quoting back to the Corinthians certain statements that they had written in a letter to him, and we don't have that letter. So it's sometimes hard to know which parts of 1 Corinthians are totally specific to the Corinthians and which parts are more universally applicable to us. It's like we're opening up someone else's mail and being surprised to find that a lot of the advice given actually does apply to us as well. What do we know about ancient Corinth? We know that it was a big city in Greece. No, I think we have a slide up here. We know it was a big city in Greece located right at the intersection of several major roads, several major bodies of water too. It was a huge city of commerce and culture. It had a big theater down here and a horse track. through which it hosted the Itzmian Games, which alternated years with the Olympic Games. It had a big shipyard just outside and hundreds of shops. There were an estimated 500,000 people in the city. It was huge. Within the main part of the city, you can see it had several large temples. The two biggest structures are temples And those were dedicated to worshiping the Greek gods Apollo, Jupiter, and Juno. Then, high above the city on a mountain, next slide, the mountain is called the Acro-Corinth. There was another temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. It's hard to understand anything about these Greco-Roman cities without understanding first the role of religion in daily life. You can take the slide down. Unlike early Judaism, Roman religion was not about ethics. It was not about rules for living. Roman philosophy was concerned with ethics. Roman religion was purely transactional. The Latin phrase, "da ut des, I give so that you give, was used to describe the relationship between humans and gods. Worshiping or sacrificing to one of the gods would be a way to obtain a blessing, or to tip an advantage in your favor, or to prevent harm. And depending on what you needed, that's which god you would go to. Nothing happened by chance. Every blessing, every curse, every harvest, every illness were the result of some whim of some god. But that's not all. Religion was also the basis for all social life in these cities. According to historian Ramsey McMullen, quote, for most people to have a good time with their friends involved some contact with a god who served as guest of honor, as the master of ceremonies, or as host in the porticos or flower-shaded gardens of the god's own temple or shrine. For most people, meat was a thing never eaten and wine never excessively drunk, save in, except in a religious setting. There existed, it is no great exaggeration to say it of all but the fairly rich, there existed no formal life, no formal social life in the world of that time that was entirely secular. Roman religion was everywhere, not just in the temples. Statues and monuments lining the streets. Idols for sale in the marketplace. Altars inside homes and courtyards. You would never think to ask somebody if they were religious. That would be ridiculous. Almost like asking, do you eat with other people? Or do you enjoy being happy? But Happy wouldn't have been the feeling for many people in these religious spaces. In Corinth, particularly, the shipyard, the theater, but especially the temples were maintained using slaves. I read this week about the hundreds, perhaps thousands, of young women who were trafficked to serve and entertain men high up on that mountain in the Temple of Aphrodite. Bless you. The economic exploitation and abuse of this captive labor force was held in place by the religious functions of the city, which could have been one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul's good news was so welcomed by many in the city. It was a message about a God who isn't transactional, who knows each person and loves each person as they are, and wants them to have an abundant life. Imagine hearing, for the first time, the news about redemption through Jesus Christ. Imagine being enslaved, trapped in patterns of exploitation, and hearing a story about the Son of God. No, not Caesar, a true Son of God, of a true God, who, rather than being worshipped and honored by Rome, was captured and crucified by Rome. But this son of God was raised to life and now lives and empowers gatherings of people throughout the Roman Empire who are resisting the Roman Empire. Imagine being invited to join a secret group called an ecclesia, which means those called out. Imagine the relief of being called out away from the places of coercion and into spaces of true freedom. Your chief teacher, Paul, tells you that if you are in Christ, there is no longer abusive power relations. Paul tells you that if you are in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew or foreigner. There is no power differential between men and women or slaves and citizens. We are all one, Paul says, in one family, (laughs) inseparable. But after a while, your teacher has to leave for another city to spread the good news elsewhere and liberate more people. So if you've been in this thought experiment with me, I'm sure you can imagine that it didn't take very long for things to sort of start unraveling. And for this group of about 100 people in Corinth to begin encountering problems or issues as they tried to live into this new countercultural reality. And this letter from Paul that we call 1 Corinthians, this letter as a whole seems to go from issue to issue, one by one. Chapters 1 through 4 address divisions that have formed in the church, likely along socioeconomic lines. And the ecclesia seems to be slipping into Roman patterns of power relations. Chapter 5 addresses one specific issue, a really troubling issue of sexual abuse. And the backdrop for that issue is almost certainly connected to the ritual exploitation of enslaved women. Chapter 6 responds to questions about whether or not to involve the Roman courts to handle disputes. Chapter 7 talks about whether their status as members of the ecclesia changes their roles in society as men or women or slaves or married people. And chapter 8 is the passage we read today. Should a member of the ecclesia eat food that is sacrificed to idols? Meat sacrificed to idols is just one word in the Greek. It's called edeluthaton. Edelon means idol, and thuo means to slaughter or sacrifice. Edeluthaton, which means, that which is sacrificed to the image of a god. Why are these Corinthians so worried about whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed in one of the city's temples? We can read very clearly between the lines in Paul's letter and almost reconstruct the letter that the Corinthians had written to him first. Some of the ecclesia in Corinth seem to be eating meat from the temples, perhaps at one of the Corinthian temples, or maybe just from the clearance racks in the markets after the meat was processed. And it's hard to blame them, right, knowing what we read earlier about meat being really hard to access if you're not wealthy, especially if you're no longer participating in the festivals to Roman gods, which would have afforded you free meat. These Corinthians had presented their case to Paul, there's really no god but one. And if idols are built to gods that don't actually exist, then it's not really sacred meat that's being offered to them. It's just regular hamburger. And after all, food will not even bring us closer to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The blessings and curses of the Roman pantheon, they're imaginary. and They were used to hold us in patterns of captivity. So why should we starve ourselves? to validate such a farcical way to structure society. And Paul, here in chapter 8, agrees with them. He says, yeah, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Good job. In essence, he says, you came up with the right answer. Correct. But then he goes on. It's not everyone, however who has this knowledge. Yes, you're right. It's not about the meat. It's just meat. But is your choice to eat it going to cause your community to stumble? The word he uses here for stumbling block is the word scandalone, which is where we get the word scandal. But it actually means setting a trap. Listen, guys, Paul's saying. Whether or not you can eat the food is not an issue. The issue is, will it lead to someone else getting ensnared into a life that might destroy them? Paul says, you got the right answer. Just show me your work. What technique did you use to solve this problem? Did you create a justification for eating meat for yourself because it makes logical sense? Did you find... The reason for eating meat an ethical principle? Finding that it's not inherently immoral to exercise my own choices in this way? Were there perhaps some self-serving intentions for enjoying the benefit, again, of temple social life? Or did you use the logic of love? How will this choice contribute to the survival and well-being of others? Will it put a stumbling block in front of someone who barely survived temple exploitation? Will it hurt someone I love? Paul goes on to address several other issues in the rest of this book, all specific questions coming from the Corinthian ecclesia. And each time, he responds in the same way. Inspect yourselves and your intentions. Your reason for doing things really matters, because if it's not ultimately love at the heart of your choices, your knowledge and your reasoning and your wisdom will fracture your community from the inside out. All of us possess knowledge, Paul says. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And five chapters later, Paul gives the Corinthians a cheat sheet on how to arrive at the right answer, the right way. He says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. <clears throat> and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, remember the temple to Aphrodite, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Friends, I want to admit to you this morning that I do not always base my choices in love. I like to be right. I like to do the right thing. I like to stand for the right causes and make choices that align with my beliefs and my principles. But how often do I stop and ask, why am I doing these things? Am I motivated out of love for you all? Am I motivated by deep love and care and grief and hope for the world? How can I tap into that love, that deep-seated reason to live in this very violent country, in a very broken world, and to walk the way of Jesus with you, my family of faith? Friends, hear the good news. The process is more important than the outcome. The way we cultivate love together will inform the choices that we make, and indeed, they are impacting the choices that we are making. Love, I believe, is why 58 people decided to fast for ceasefire in Gaza this week. Not just principle, but love. Love is why we advocate for incarcerated senior citizens to have the chance to petition courts to be released after serving more than two decades in prison. Love. When I watch Keiko work with the kids and youth here, I know that love is her motivation. Friends, we don't always have the right answer. But if every moment of our lives together is shaped by the God who loves us and knows us, then our community will continue to be built up on love. Thanks be to God.